0: It is, it is such a privilege to be here, and uh, thank you for all you're doing in your churches. I love this, the, the philosophy behind this conference uh, of just serving pastors, and boy, do they serve pastors. I mean, it's uh, just a real example of washing the feet of those who serve, um, and I pray that's what happens today. Um, it's an honor to, to be a part of this and to be able to do a breakout. Um, And to do anything here, really. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to think more carefully about what we do in our gatherings. Uh, we, We want to serve you. We want to glorify you. We want to bring glory to Jesus, our great Savior. We want your people to be fed well, as John was talking about earlier. And so we pray that our time together would be a means to that end. Uh, we we can't do anything of our own initiative, our own power, our own wisdom, so we pray that your spirit would, would guide this time for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what this is called is um, what really matters in our gatherings, and uh, I trust that you'll not only be able to take stuff home philosophically, but practical things. And that's that's my hope. That's my prayer. And the, one of the questions is like, how do you go home from a conference where you got three thousand pastors singing at the top of their lungs to your church, <laughs> which probably doesn't sound like that. Um, and and you don't have you might not have the the band and the orchestra and 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 all that stuff. Um, it's going to be different. But some things are going to be the same, and we're going to talk about the things that are the same. Uh, we're going to talk about what are the what are the closed hand, open hand issues when it comes to our weekly gatherings. Like what what is non negotiable and what are negotiables, and that will help us plan. Um, we, we want to find out or look at what's biblical, what's cultural, what's context. That those we're going to be. Um, Yeah, just talking about those kinds of things, not those specific categories, but we're going to touch on all those. When you think about what uh, we do in our gatherings, there are a lot of reasons we do what we do. I'm not sure it's always because the Bible tells me so. And that's what we want to look at in this session. We want to look at what does the Bible say? Anyone have a copy of Reformation Worship? Big book, yeah. The three essays in the front are worth the book. I mean, the book's like this, uh, but the three essays about worship are really, really fantastic. But it contains uh, uh, scores of liturgies throughout the centuries, and you can, we can begin to get the impression that, okay, there's, there's a, and they don't say this, there's a liturgy, there's a right way of doing things. You know, God didn't give us one. He didn't give us a lit, the perfect liturgy. So as I've thought about these things, as, as head of Sovereign Grace Music, part of Sovereign Grace Churches, I've realized, well, for, let me, let me a little background, I re, was raised as a Roman Catholic and was going to become a priest and didn't, obviously. <laughs> uh, just in case you're wondering, <laughs> praise the Lord. Um, but when I, after I became a Christian, and for many years after I became a Christian, the whole idea of, of liturgy was just kind of ugh, anathema to me. I just didn't like the idea. And it wasn't until I read Brian Chappell's book, Christ-Centered Worship, it opened my eyes to the fact that, oh no, there's no perfect liturgy, but some are better than others. And a well-thought-out liturgy is better than one that's not thought out. And I, I'm guessing that as... as studious as we might be, uh, student, students of the, the gathering that we might be, that there may be things about our gathering that we could take a second look at and say, well, are these really the things we're supposed to be doing? Or Should we stop doing these things? Should we do more of this? We planted a church 10 years ago in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and that was an opportunity for us to start over. Uh, I was it was C.J. Mahaney and, and other guys who were my age or around my age, and th- we, we had a lot of experience. But what we saw was, man, this is an opportunity to really look again at Scripture and say, what, what are the primary things? So I've been on that journey for the last 10 years, if not more. And uh, what we're going to do in this session, rather than lay out a specific pattern or practice that we can follow, is we're going to talk about five values that should inform and direct our choices and decisions and practices. Each one of those values is going to have an Im- indicative, something that's true about it, and then an imperative, something that we should do as a result of it. Does that make sense? And then we're going to draw some practical applications from those. So I hope this is helpful. I'm going to try and make sure we have some time for questions um, because this is it's about your church. This is not... You know, we're not trying to make everybody look the same. It's what what does the Lord want to see happen in my church? And part of that involves, you know, what next steps do I take? What what things can we do? We just changed our literally just recently, um, just being convinced that we had too much extra stuff in the middle, so we moved some stuff up to the front and changed it. It, it was just it's just been great. Uh, so there's always stuff we can do. So first value God, <laughs> don't you think that's appropriate? God, our gatherings are God-initiated and meant to be God-exalting. So that's what, that's what I'll do for each one. They are this. They're meant to be this. They're God-initiated and meant to be God-exalting. When we think of worship, we typically start with ourselves. We're going to worship. We're going to do the worship. Who did the worship today? Well, God did the worship today. Uh, he, he, and if, if he wasn't involved, there was no worship. No God-pleasing worship. But we think, you know, we sing, we pray. Some of us even lift our hands. We organize, we read Scripture, we gather. But as you look at God's relationship with us, with His people in the Scripture, He's always taking the initiative. It's, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see this. God called Adam and Eve out after they sinned. Adam and Eve didn't go looking for God. They didn't, they didn't think, oh, we're out of God's presence, how can we get back? He came looking for them. He established a covenant with Noah after the flood. He's the one who came to Noah. He revealed himself to Abraham in the fields of Hebron. He spoke to Moses in the burning bush, delivered his people from Egypt. He initiated all that. He calls his people together at Mount Sinai to reveal his laws, to tell them, you're my chosen People, you're my treasured possession. He called out prophets through which he spoke to his people again and again and again, Samuel, David, other prophets. He sent his son to redeem us. When we thought, Wow, how are we going to get out of this? God sends his son. He said, This is how you're going to get out of this. It's so great. And then he sends his spirit to enable us to know him and to apply the effects of what Christ has done to us, to transform us. So God has always been the one who takes the initiative in our relationship with him. We are simply being invited to join in on the joy-filled adoration and fellowship that the Trinity has enjoyed from eternity, from all eternity. That's what we're being invited to join in on. We're not starting anything. We don't gather together as a result of our own impulses or desires or planning. We gather because God has called us together. He's called us to himself, to behold his glory, to receive his word, and to be changed into the likeness of his Son. He initiated our relationship with him, and then he initiates our gatherings. So our gatherings are God-initiated. But for what purpose? Well, to exalt him. That's why we gather. So David says, Psalm 34, "'I will bless the Lord at all times.'" His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Because the the proud don't want to hear it. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's David's passion. That should be our passion. That should be our people's passion when we gather. That means we don't gather to simply consider God or philosophize about him or discuss Him, or just think about Him, or share our opinions about Him. We gather to exalt Him. And what what I mean by that is to magnify Him, to increase our awareness of Him in our minds, and our hearts, and our wills. Everything. Everything about us. When the Bible talks about praising God, it's with our whole being. We're going to exalt Him, not just with our songs, not just with our minds, not just outside the meeting, everything, we're going to exalt God. We're going to make much of the God who is, who always has been, and the God who always will be. It's not some vague deity that we're coming together, God of our own choosing, made in our image. I'm in this conversation right now with a guy from the UK who who, uh, uh, heard the song, Before the Throne of God Above and wrote us to tell us, I think this is one of the finest songs in English language. He's an atheist. And so I'm in this conversation with him right now uh, about how his view of the cross is, it's just a beautiful act of self-sacrifice. You don't need a resurrection. You don't need him to be the son of God. It's just a beautiful act of sacrifice. So I haven't written him this response yet, but I'm going to say, you're just making up what you want to believe i'm just i 'm looking at what the Bible says that actually means so we we, we don't gather to just make up things about God to, to we really want to know who he is because that's we can't exalt a god we don 't know we have to know Him. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The, that is that is who we are worshiping, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, who rules history, the nations, and our hearts. We are coming to a God who has revealed Himself to be Father, Son, and Spirit, and we want to exalt Him in that way. And that exaltation is to be universal. It's not just about us. We're looking forward to the day when everything that has breath praises the Lord, because that's the command. And when Jesus comes back, everything that has breath will praise the Lord. Praise God. So what are the implications of our meetings being God initiated and God exalting? Well, here's some. Although God is spirit and invisible to us, he's to be clearly seen in our meetings. And by that I mean He's He's to be seen as preeminent, He's to be seen as honored. He, he's to be heard is to be treasured, we ought to be aware that the most important participant in our gatherings is God himself. And that's a challenge because we get so caught up in what we're doing. God's the most important participant, which, number two, frees us from the pressure to feel like we have to produce or perform. God's the one, Jesus, in Jesus, he's the one who's, who's doing this. We shouldn't feel worn out by gathering with the saints. I mean, what I'm doing here, this is not gathering with the saints, but this shouldn't be a burden. Leading in our churches shouldn't be a burden. Not if we're aware that God's initiated it, God's sustaining it. He's the one who's getting all the glory. Now, if we don't think he initiated it and we want the glory, it's going to be really hard. So just a, just a heart check, after a Sunday, and there's appropriate weariness for sure, <laughs> but after a Sunday, or as you, maybe as you're looking forward to Sunday, is it a wait or is there joy? Is there expectation? Wow, we get to meet with God. And while we're there, we're going to be exalting him. We're going to be thinking more about him and, and reminding ourselves of how good he is and merciful and kind and true and righteous and holy and majestic and awesome. I can't wait. I hope that's, that should be our attitude. We're meeting to receive and marvel at the God who has called us into his presence. Never lose the wonder. And if you never had it, I suggest that you you tap into that. It's a wonder to meet in God's presence as God's people. Three, people shouldn't be impressed with our plans and preparation and production as much as they are with God's word, worthiness, and works. The most important thing about our meeting is not our creativity, it's not our originality, it's not our innovation. It's our listening and faithfulness and bearing witness to who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ. And then another implication is just our gatherings are to be innately and expressly Trinitarian, which I think a lot of us would probably be aware of, but is often missed in different dynamics. Think about the way you pray. Just think about the way you pray. How often do you pray Trinitarian prayers? You know, they pray Trinitarian prayers all the time in the New Testament. One of my favorite, Second, Thess- Second Thessalonians 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's not Trinitarian, but the, the Jesus and the Father. And God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. Why does Paul do that? I love that. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Do we ever pray that way? Maybe we. Maybe we should think about it. Maybe we should think about it's not just God. Oh God, we which is fine, fine. But God has revealed Himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so our meetings should should that should be the warp and woof of our, of our meetings. That should just be the fiber. That, that you don't have to expressly say it all the time. It's just coming through in your songs, it's coming through in your prayers, it's coming through in your preaching. Uh, we did a song, an album a few years ago called Sooner Count the Stars, which was an album filled with songs that were expressly Trinitarian. And I was working with a writer the other day and she said, uh, um, is, like, do we still want to, she was work on, working on a line, said, a, a verse that was like Father, Son, and Spirit. Do you, are we still like, wanting to include the Trinity and stuff? I said, yeah. I think we should keep on including the Trinity. Uh, Okay, so God initiated, God exalting. Number two, Scripture. Our our gatherings are Scripture-governed and meant to be Scripture-fueled. Now, hoping I'll just stretch your minds a little bit on, on some of these things. When people attend a concert, their favorite musician or band, they express their devotion in various ways. Posters, dressing like the artist, going crazy on social media, shouting, dancing, trying to touch them. Apart from destroying property or anything around them, pretty much anything goes you know, at a concert. Not that I've been to many recently. But God is not a rock star. He is God. And He gets to define how we approach Him. What's right, what's pleasing to Him. He, he alone can tell us what God-exalting worship is. And we really want to know that. He alone can tell us who he is, and he does that through his word. That means being being sincere isn't enough to say that your worship is pleasing to God. I think we all understand that. Uh, We can't worship God in our own way. No one can. And uh, I remember reading advertisements for different worship albums and, you know, Worship like you've never worshipped before, or or this was an ad for a a a a pad where you could have pads playing it. Take your worship to the next level. That that's that's a travesty. (laughs) That's just no no. It's not going to do more than Jesus can. Pretty sure of that. Or the Spirit. And uh, that's because God's Word tells us what, what He is pleased with. And it's not just our sincerity. It's coming to Him the way He has ordained through the, the work of His Son. So how do we know what constitutes in more detail, what's pleasing to God? Well, we receive His commands with reverence and joy and faith. And Herbert Bateman uh, wrote a book called Authentic Worship, where he says this From the beginning, all records of worship, whether erecting altars or performing circumcision, always express a response of submission, obedience, and trust in God's verbal statement of relationship, his word. I, mean, I thought John's comments on the Asbury revival were just excellent. Um, you know, praying that God. Is doing something in the earth. Uh, You know, I remember the 70s. I came to the Lord in 72, and it was a unique time. Uh, But what is not in line with His Word won't last. And it'll actually be destructive. uh, Because we'll think we're doing something God wants us to do. But He's told us what He wants us to do in His Word. And so we want to pay attention because our. Worship is to be Scripture-governed. In the Bible, things didn't go well for those who disobeyed God's commands for how we are to worship Him. It was a question about God's Word that led to the fall. Uh, Satan said, did God really say? You know, questioning His Word. Second commandment prohibits worship through images, which the Israelites completely rejected in Exodus 32. As they danced before the golden calf. Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu didn't fare well. They offered up strange fire. God struck them dead. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks of the authority of God's word in contrast to our, our traditions, what we do. Uh, quoting Isaiah 29 in Matthew 15, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now we've got to be careful here because traditions aren't bad. We, we all benefit from traditions. Traditions can be very helpful in, in cementing and reinforcing the things that are true. And, and as C.S. Lewis, Lewis says, they get to a place where they feel like an old shoe. You don't really notice them, but, but they're helping you get to what's most important. But traditions that contradict or ignore or minimize what God has clearly directed us to do in Scripture have to be thrown out. And that can be really hard when you have some people in your church who are saying, we've always done it that way. And, you know, well, praise God, we can change. (laughs) Isn't that great? Isn't that great? God cares about how we worship Him and His worship is governed by his word. But because it's governed by his word, it's also meant to be fueled by his word. Throughout history, God has mediated his relationship with his people through not experiences or visions or even times of singing, but through his word. And this is, I think it was Dan Block's book, uh, For the Glory of God, um, where I f- first saw this presented so clearly, where he went through all the times that God had interacted with his people and, and showed how the Word was always at the center of him. You know, one of the most striking is at the end of Exodus 33, when, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, and God says, I'll cause my goodness to pass before your eyes. And you know, if you don't know what's coming... You could imagine, well, you know, what's it going to be like an aurora borealis? Is it going to be you know flowers? Is it going to be you know, just some pleasant smell, a beautiful breeze? Am I going to think of you, know, his goodness, his glory. The no, he talks to him. He says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger." and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I memorized that a few years ago because I thought, this is like what God revealed to Moses. I don't even know what it says. I I mean, this was just a few years ago, like 10 years ago. I just thought, maybe I should like, remember that but it, it points out how little we value his word at least me i mean i guess you have similar experiences where you know refer to some thing, something in the bible somewhere yeah you know where it says in james that thing about you know judging and people and you shouldn't do that yeah like okay that's it you know um as i've gotten older i've just i'm memorizing a lot more Scripture. Because I, it's the Word of God. It's God's Word, and I want it in me. I don't just want it vague. So, scriptures to fuel. Uh, scriptures to fuel. Uh, if our, our worship of God is fueled by scripture. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. I, I'm sure I don't need to persuade you of this, but it brings us to salvation and is universally relevant. The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.2, we're to preach the word. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Hebrews 2.1 says we need constant reminders of God's word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Colossians 3.16 says it's the word of Christ, the gospel that is to dwell in us richly as we sing. So scripture's meant to fuel our gatherings. We're meant to be very aware that the, the fuel behind our whatever affections are experienced in the gathering, the fuel is the word of God. So here's some implications. We should maximize in our gatherings what is mandated or implied by Scripture and minimize what isn't. We should maximize what's mandated or implied by Scripture and minimize what isn't. So, yes to preaching, praying, singing, spiritual gifts, the Lord's Supper, greeting, reading Scripture. No to performances, movie clips, painting, musical hype. I'm sure you can think of other things. Snake handling. Just <laughs> case. Although someone might make a case for that. We are to, uh, as I uh, first heard this from Mark Deborah, I think, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, read the Bible, preach the Bible, see the Bible. Sing, pray, read, preach, see in, in the sacraments, uh, baptism, and uh, the Lord's Supper. It's where we see the Word of God. Um, when we planted the church uh, ten years ago, ten and a half years ago now, we this was one of the weaknesses we saw that our gatherings oh, didn't contain much of the Word of God. You know, the sermon was there, and I'd slip it in somewhere in the singing. But we said, "Well, how can we, how can we make it more evident?" So that's when we began call to call the worship and benediction. Of course, church has been doing that for you know hundreds and hundreds of years. We're just catching up. We're just, we're just, okay, maybe it is a good idea. Um, yeah, and it, what a difference it's made. Uh, now, one of the changes we made recently was we don't, we don't start with that. We start with welcoming guests and you know, saying, stop by the back before you leave and you know, thank you for coming and um, maybe tell them a little bit about what's coming. I know some churches do their announcements there. Um, but then we say, now we're going to call, call us together uh, with the Word of God. So that, that just forms this mark where you're not starting to worship. As Harold Best says, there's, no, there's only one call to worship, and that comes at conversion. The rest is a call to a continuation of worship, which is just that's Harold, that's vintage Harold Best, which is true. But the, the difference is we're gathered. So it's the gathered worship of the church, and it is different. So we're, we're calling uh, everybody to that. And then as we send people out, we're, we're sending them out with the Word of God and what we're seeking to do with that is not just sending them out with something that says get out there and do better that that's not what we're sending them out with we're sending them out with grace and faith and i have a whole list of benedictions that that i will look at and if i don't find one there i'll i'll just look at the text that was preached and you know i'll i'll find one that fits that makes makes sense with the sermon that was preached it's not just a general hey whatever you know, God deals with us specifically on different weeks, different days, different places, and so it's worth saying, "Well, what what word might God want to speak to us to the church as we go out to to live for the glory of Jesus in our daily lives?" So we give a lot of attention to that. Um, connect the parts of your meeting theologically. So, if scriptures to fuel our meeting. That means it's not just reading it, but it's it's communicating to people why we're doing what we're doing. That's why I say stuff when when I lead singing. We could just sing, uh, and that'd be fine. I used to do that, you know, five songs, two too fast, one medium, too slow, and <laughs> it was great. I that's the, that's my background, but I've realized that. I get a lot more out of the singing when I'm actually bringing the word of God to bear on what we're singing. Uh, So that's what I mean, connect things theologically. Build songs around the word rather than building the word around the songs. So a lot of times we'll, we'll say, oh, I want to do this song, and then we'll figure out some scripture to introduce it. Why not start with the scripture and then figure out what song you should do? So that's been a big change for us in planning our meetings. So I, I plan the liturgy with David Zimmer and a couple other guys. Um, we start, and this is a little different, I'm, I know, with the sermon from the week before. It's kind of what I'm doing here. I'm feeding off the last message. Right. So when we, I don't know if you noticed that, when we sing those songs, their base, their response to the last message. Because that's what we heard. We just heard, and okay, let's, Let's think more about that. Let's just meditate on that. So so we'll do that for Sunday. We'll look at the the last message, and then that's where the call to worship will be. It'll be something related to that. And then the next song will be related to that. It's coming out of that scripture. So I might have a song, I think, oh, that'd be a perfect song. But when I pick the scripture, it's not a perfect song anymore. I think, oh, no, this song would be better. So that's just being word-driven, word-fueled, rather than song-driven. Be aware that Scripture fueling our meetings, here's another another implication, isn't a matter of quantity, but of quality. And and those who are of the Reformed camp can miss this. We can just think, you know, it's like a scripture me, scriptural meter, you know, where the, the more Scriptures we get in there, you know, the better we are. And it's not that. It, they have to be understood. They have to be, they have to have an impact on the people who are hearing them. So it's one of the reasons we tend to go with a shorter call to worship rather than a longer, like a whole psalm or something. And you can do that, but I'm just telling you how we would think about it. We know, like if you're going to read Psalm you know, 71, which is a lot of verses, people are going to have a lot of time to get distracted. You know, they're, they're walking in off the street and it's like we expect them to like pay attention to the whole thing. We want them to benefit from what we're doing. So we'll, we'll tend to make those shorter. So it's, it's, we want it to be understood. We want to make an impact. Obviously, preach expositionally. We, we want to present God's word in the way that God has said it. Seek to move people more by the word than by music. Again, one trap we can fall into is, because <laughs> music is an emotional language, is to think that, you know, that's what we're really, that's what we really get people, you know, get, get their hearts. You know, the Word of God is, is, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrates, dividing soul and spirit, joints and merit, judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's pretty powerful. And the problem is we don't have faith that it's powerful. We just read it. You know, it's not just a scripture. It's not just, it's not just words on a page. It's the Word of God. And what a privilege that we get to read it. So, so it's, it's reading it in a way that communicates to people, we're going to sing a song about this, but this is the reason we're singing that song. What God has said. And this is just a response to it, but this is what really matters. And then evaluate our, our, our responses by Scripture more than our culture. And by that, I'm just encouraging some of you guys in just a little more expressiveness. And I, I do that in the spirit of Christian love yes. because, calm down, We're not cultural Christians. We are biblical Christians. But I think too often we have filters on our eyes as we read passages like Nehemiah 8, 5, and 6. Ezra opened the door in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he appeared it, all the people stood. As, As he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It was, it was a moving event. And he was just reading. That's what was going on. I just love that. There was one time uh, in a conference with Matt Papa. And he read that. And he said, you know, I'm just going to read this psalm. or I forget what he's reading. It's something in the Bible. And uh, he said, I just want you to respond to, to what I'm reading. And it was just such a moving moment because people were given permission given freedom and it was clear that this is meaning something to me no one's doing it because i want to show you how expressive i am no it's just this is it's the way we normally act and that that's that's how our expressions should be evaluated by what's normal how we would normally react if we found out that oh, I don't know, your team just won the championship, or um, you just had a granddaughter or or a child, or um, you just got engaged, or any, any joyful event where you're realizing, this is pretty significant. This is really good. And I want to commend you guys, because this is the first Shepherds Conference I've led at where there was actually expressiveness from the first meeting. And when I say expressiveness, I mean it wasn't dead silence after we sang. <laughs> I, I, and it's not about, uh, you know, no, we got to be all extroverts. No, it's about doing what's natural to what we're singing. And what, what do we do the first day? Yeah, all I have is Christ. Yeah. How can you not want to respond when you're saying, hallelujah, all I have is Christ? Does that mean anything? Is it true? If it's true, then it's good news. And if it's good news, you, you do want to... Yes! Yes! <laughs> anyway, all right. So all I'll say about that, number three. Number three, the gospel. So we've got God, Scripture, and the gospel. How are we doing on time? When do we start this? Oh my gosh, we are so behind. Okay, our gatherings are gospel-grounded and meant to be gospel-driven. Gospel-grounded and meant to be gospel-driven. Throughout Scripture, God calls His people together to recount His acts of salvation. We see it in the Old Testament where He calls His people together again and again to, to, for them to remember, to recall how He delivered them from Egypt. He's always reminding them of that. You see it everywhere in the Old Testament. After Babylon... He, they were talking about how they celebrated how he restored them to the promised land from Babylon. For us, of course, that means realizing that God has delivered us from sin and from hell, and we gather together to celebrate again and again his salvation. For Christ, First Peter 3.18, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's how we are brought to God. If Christ, through his substitutionary sacrifice, did not bring us to God, we would not be able to approach him. We would, we would expect judgment rather than blessing. And didn't Josiah do a great job with Zephaniah yesterday as he spoke? Of, I've never heard a sermon on Zephaniah. And I told him today at the beginning, I was thinking, I was a little nervous, It's a little graphic, God tearing you apart, pouring your blood out, and just, <laughs> where is this going? <laughs> but I tell you, when he got to Zephaniah 3.17, talked about the Lord singing over us, that sung like it had never sung before. And it's, it's, just, it's just the word of God. But it's, it's talking about that deliverance. It's talking about salvation. I, we, we should be increasingly more amazed by what Jesus did. And it should never become old. Never, never become tired. if it's become tired to us it's, it's our fo- it's our problem. We're not seeing something of the depths that Jesus descended to and and the, the problem we had uh, i it just defies description to consider how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come be one of us. So that, so that he could live a life of perfect obedience, so that he could die and receive the judgment for our disobedience. The Son of God? Why would he do that? The Father ordained it, Jesus wanted to do it, and the Spirit supplying it. He just wanted to do it. It's it's mind-boggling. So we get together to celebrate that. And, and the writer to Hebrews you know, spends chapter after chapter telling his, his readers, look, the old priests didn't do it. They, they can't do it. They died. They had to offer for their own sins. And you know, the, the high priest could only go in once a year. And wasn't, it wasn't doing it. But we have a great high priest now. And he's sufficient. And so I remember when I was listening to a message by Eric Alexander when I was jogging years ago on this passage, and I, I just stopped when I realized the implications of this passage, how Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, how for centuries God had said, don't come near, don't come near, don't come near, don't come near. And now, come near. You say, "Come." Here. Therefore, brothers, since we have no, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. So, we, our our meetings are gospel grounded. Paul didn't hesitate to remind the recipients of his letters of the gospel. Now it would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. 1 Corinthians 15.1. That's after all the talk about spiritual gifts and uh, uh, the love chapter. Here's what I really want you to remember is that Jesus Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. Don't forget that. So that's what we're gathering to remember. He instructed the Colossians Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Theologian David Pryor said, we never move on from the cross, only to a more profound understanding of the cross, or deeper understanding of the cross. So if it's the ground of our meetings, then it's it's meant to drive our meetings. The gospel is the power of God. It is God working in our hearts to open our eyes to his glory, to transform us, to make us aware of his love. That's what the gospel does. Techniques, technology, smooth transitions can never replace the gospel. They can only point to it. They can't replace it. Peter links a lack of growth in godliness to forgetting the gospel, you know, that list of virtues in Second Peter. He says, forever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's how we grow. We, we remember that. We don't forget it. So we we have the privilege of remembering it, celebrating it every time we get together. That's why we share the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For centuries, the church has uh, influenced the order of gatherings. The gospel has influenced the order of gatherings to remind us of God's holiness, our sinfulness, what God has done to forgive us, and the appropriate response to that, which was, you know, a, a, such a eye opener for me when in Brian Chappell's book, Christ Center Worship, when I realized, oh, that's that's what the liturgies were supposed to do. They're they're not just like words you say and like things you do, sit up, sit up, kneel, stand down, or whatever. Uh, it, it actually means something. I never knew that. So that's very helpful. So if the gospel is the ground of our gatherings, and meant to drive our gatherings, what does that look like? Our songs and prayers and preaching are meant to be gospel-exalting and expanding, not unclear or vague. It's why I love songs like Before the Throne of God Above. Verse 2, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Let's sing it together. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. That's the gospel. And it tells us why it happened, what, what it signified. God the just is satisfied to look on the sinless one in his payment and pardon me. That's, that's different from a song like uh, a great hymn. Great hymn, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, doesn't tell us anything about what happened. It's just an expression of our affection, appropriately, for Jesus and his dying for us. But it doesn't tell us what happened. So if you are wanting your meetings to be gospel-driven, you will be aware of how much is this song really saying. Not that you can't use them, but just don't assume that because something's talking about Jesus dying that we're explaining the gospel. We emphasize what God has done over what we have to do. That's that's a meeting being gospel-driven. In other words, the indicative over the imperative. People should not leave our meetings every Sunday with shoulds and musts, but I can't believe it, and we get to, and we want to. That's the effect of the gospel. It's not that there aren't commands. There are a lot of commands, but Paul's way and Peter's way and the New Testament writer's way of motivating us is to spend two or three chapters on the gospel or 11 chapters in the gospel in the case of Romans. Uh, uh, Yeah. And then say, okay, now this is how you should live. How often do we assume the gospel is in our people's hearts and just rush to, you just need to do a better job of being a Christian. You know, the, the phrase, live a life worthy of the gospel, we... It's right to think about that as, as that, of that as saying, well, we want to live a life that's you know, pure and holy and righteous and godly. But another way to look at that is live a life worthy of the gospel, live a life uh, that looks like someone who can't believe that they know God and that they're constantly aware of God's kindness and his mercy and his grace toward them. And it causes them to be humble and it causes them to be joyful and grateful, and want to serve others, and encourage others. Why? Because you're living a life worthy of the gospel. That's what the gospel does in people. And if our people, and we are leaving with, I'm just not doing enough, they haven't seen Christ. They, they just haven't seen Christ. The gospel can affect the structure of our meetings. Talk some about that, how we, and there are different ways of doing this, but just starting with God's greatness, moving on to our sinfulness, um, moving on to what God has done about our sinfulness, and then a response. We initially began that, doing that in our church plant pretty strictly. And we realized after three weeks, that's not working. It just felt for us like, Ugh, that's just not. So we, we do it in different ways now, but we're always talking about, in that first half of the meeting, we're talking about what God has done for us in Christ to reconcile us to himself because we don't want anybody there believers or unbelievers thinking that this is just kind of our deal and you know we're fine and the fact that Jesus died that's great but you know I want to get on to other deeper things there's no deeper thing um, regular observance of the lord's supper and baptism all right let's move on to the spirit our gatherings are spirit enabled and meant to be spirit empowered Spirit-enabled and meant to be spirit-empowered. Just as God initiates our worship, so he enables it by his spirit. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John 4, he assured her that whoever drank of the living water he offered would never thirst again. And a few chapters later, chapter 7, he says that whoever believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that living water is the Spirit. That's what Jesus meant when the Father, he said the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. It's the Spirit who enables us to worship God. More succinctly, Paul says in Philippians 3, 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit, we cannot worship God. And we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There he's drawing a a contrast. We worship by the Spirit of God, we don't put confidence in our flesh. Spirit-enabled worship acknowledges that we bring nothing to God but the sin that required the death of His Son. We didn't make ourselves Christians. It was a work of the Spirit of God to give life to our dead spirits through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus according to the plan of the Father. He enables that worship to take place. But He not only is enabling our worship, He empowers it. And you don't have to be a continuationist to believe that. If you don't believe that, you aren't a Christian church, just so you know. The Spirit is doing everything in our meetings, empowering what's taking place. Anything of eternal significance, that's the Spirit's Work. It's it's he's working in and through everyone when we gather. First Corinthians twelve seven. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's diverse. 1 Corinthians twelve eleven. All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. There are gifts all around on Sunday morning. Everywhere you look, there are gifts. The Spirit's given gifts to people. Our singing is 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 characterized by the Spirit's filling in Ephesians five. So what what are some of the implications of seeing our gatherings as spirit enabled and empowered? It should imprease, increase our prayer life dramatically if we really believe this. If we don't, prayer just is perfunctory. A few years ago, we started, the, the, the uh, mixing console crashed on Sunday morning, and uh, we were just all standing around, and it was during rehearsal, and I thought, I should probably redeem the time. And so, we walked through the liturgy, and I told him everything that was going on, that we were going to do that day, and we've never not done that since then. Just thought, wow, I wasn't doing this before. But the other thing we did was we prayed, and we took like 10 minutes to pray. Uh, as the the musicians. And it was just so refreshing because I thought, wow, we were really expressing our dependence on the Lord here. We're really acting like we believe that unless He comes and works, nothing's happening. So we'll pray more. It will increase our faith, expectation, and anticipation that God will work in our midst when we gather. So whether your church is 20 or 200 or 2,000 or 20,000, it's the same Spirit. And He's there to work. He's, he's there to, to work through the gospel and the word of God and through his people to do what only God can do, and that is to transform us into the image of his son, while at the same time pouring out, shedding abroad in our hearts the love of God. That's what the Spirit does. He can do that in your church. We'll begin to see how many ways the Spirit's working in our gatherings. Before, during, after. So during the planning During the meeting, during the singing, during the preaching, during the announcements, during the prayers, during the fellowship, we'll look around and think, wow, the Spirit's at work here. There's so many times we can look around and think, oh, I don't want to talk to that person. Uh, uh, Or or, or, I got to do this, I got to do this. Take a few moments, really, before and after your meeting, to just look around and see what God's doing. The Spirit is working. He's working through the Spirit of faith. as someone prays for someone, Spirit of hospitality through, if you have people greeting at the, at the meeting. Um, gift of administration, the fact that you can even make things work on a Sunday. I'm so thankful for the gift of administration that other people have. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. We should exp- and we should expect to be affected by our gatherings. You know, uh, again, those of us who, who love the Word of God and who, who love teaching and who love... Um, precision. and We can start thinking that our relationship with God is strictly academic, strictly intellectual. Brothers, we will follow after what we love. And the most important question you ask about anybody is, what do you love? What do you love the most? That's the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if our affections aren't being stirred as we gather, maybe, maybe we're missing out on something that Spirit wants to do. That's the Spirit's work. So that's all about the Spirit enabling and empowering. Okay, last one, last value. And I, I hope you understand we are like just dipping into these. You know, we're, this isn't any exhaustive presentation, but it, I do hope it's helping you think about some of the ways you think about your, your gathering. Last one is the church. Our gatherings are church shaped and meant to be church oriented church-shaped and meant to be church-oriented. We struggle a little bit with the words because I've, I've come up with these with my son, Devin. Um, Sunday Gathering is not a production company. Praise God. Offering a weekly event d- defined and driven by lighting and video and staging. Sunday Gathering is not a theological lecture filling people with head knowledge but doing little to shape or affect their passions and desires. James Smith has written a bit on that. Um, the Sunday gathering is a business venture or fast food franchise driven by principles of pragmatism, marketing, financial success, you know that. Sunday gathering is not a place to push the boundaries of creativity. It's not a theater performance led by actors who words and actions outside that meeting bear no resemblance to what they're doing in the meeting. Our Sunday gatherings are a, an event of eternal significance. The church redeemed from every tribe and language and people and tongue, from sin's bondage and God's wrath by the blood of Christ, is gathering to bear witness in the presence of God and his people to his greatness and glory and goodness in Jesus Christ. That's, that's who we are. So our, our gatherings are shaped by the reality of this church. Paul says in Ephesians 2.22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. We're being built not into an emotional or musical experience, but into a spiritual house, 1 Peter 2. And the church has borders, has insiders and outsiders, right? When Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 talks about if an outsider comes in, that's not just someone who's outside the building, that's someone who's not part of the church. But the church is not just made up of the people in the room, it's, it's made up of the, the, the universal church, all times. We've been called ultimately to the gathering at the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will meet those we've never met because we weren't alive when they were. But our weekly gathering is a foretaste of that day. And Hebrews 12 talks about that, 22 through 24, which you can look at later. <laughs> so the church is the shape of our gatherings. It's not just a meeting. It is, it is the church. Of Jesus Christ. That means our meetings will be oriented around the church. We're not oriented towards performing, producing, or people on a stage. We're not spectators in an audience. I tell the people in my band, we are part of the congregation. And as a preacher, you should feel like you are part of the congregation. I had the opportunity to uh, be with Sinclair Ferguson one time, and he's just one of my favorite preachers. And uh, I said, Sinclair, when you preach, I feel like Jesus is speaking to me. He's pretty good. And I said, how do you do that? And he just had an immediate answer. He said, well, when I preach, I imagine myself in the congregation and Jesus preaching through me. Okay, that's good. Whenever Whenever we are in front of people, that's what's taking place. The Lord is ministering to his people. We're, we're there. We're his vessel. He's using us. But we are all part of the congregation. Now, therefore, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, there are varieties of activities, but he's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Everyone's involved. And, of course, in a larger church, you'll have you know some people doing more things than others. But there should be a design to the meeting that somehow... Makes people aware that we are a church, a congregation, not just a show. And are people aware of that? You have welcome one another, instruct one another, greet one another, comfort one another, serve one another, address one another, admonish one another, encourage one another. Who's doing all that stuff? Do you, as a pastor? How many pastors do we have in this room? Senior pastors. Well, okay, great. A lot. Uh, yeah. Do you feel that burden? Like I got to do all this stuff. I got to do all this stuff. I got to do all this stuff. You should it's your church is a church so what does a church shaped and gathered oriented gathering look like we'll be conscious of the uniqueness of what's taking place there's no meeting on earth like the gathering of those redeemed by the blood of the lamb just uh, this great conference but i'm always more effective by gathering with my church and I'd always rather be with my church. If I'm visiting you know, another church somewhere, I'd rather be with my church. I mean, I'm grateful for the universal church, I mean the worldwide church, but I want to be with my church. So that's it's my church. We'll involve the congregation in various ways, serving, prayer ministries, scripture readings, music. Um, yes, yeah, so we've been conscious of that, just trying to involve the, the congregation in different, different aspects of the meeting. The sound of the congregation will be the priority when we sing. So if it's a church-shaped gathering, church-oriented gathering, you will be more aware of the congregation's voice than the band, than the musicians. It's really easy here because you guys are so loud. It's it's. Not. But if your church isn't loud, one of the ways to help them be loud is not play so much. You know, you might have a pianist that's just always doing this. You know, teach them to just do this. Let people sing. Pastoral care will be at the forefront of our planning, preparation, and leadership. If, if it's a church, which we're called to feed and shepherd, then, then we have responsibility to care for and shepherd that flock. We're not just stirring up a crowd. Uh, we, we are shepherding souls. Um, that's one of the reasons I will say things in the midst of singing. Because I'm speaking to what these words mean. I want people to get what these words mean. I don't want us just to sing. And some people say that's distracting. I'm sorry. <laughs> it can be overdone. But it is one of the ways, or, or even speaking between songs, it's, it's just it's one of the ways that we're saying, we care about your souls. We care about who you are. And then, finally, we'll be historically aware of, of what the church has done for centuries Mining liturgies, songs, teachings of the past. Uh, Someone said tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. We don't want to do traditionalism. Tradition's okay. It's the living faith of the dead. We want to be committed to reforming the dead faith and reclaiming the living traditions of the past, recognizing that the Bible is our ultimate authority that's pretty much what I got. Um, it is 3.02, but I'm going to just take time for any, if there are any questions, like maybe five minutes, yeah, right there. That's great. Yes, I think ge- generally, and this would not be, how would I say this? Routine is good as long as it's not the, uh, the ultimate issue. In other words, it's not about being creative every week. It is about having routines that enable people to come in and not be shocked every time something's happening. So there's this healthy tension of planning and, or creativity, let's call it that. CJ, my pastor, CJ Mahaney, my friend, my dear friend has said to me for years, um, the Holy Spirit helps us plan. Our plans are not the Holy Spirit. Um, which kind of relates to your question. If we have routine and we're so stuck to that routine that it never changes, that can have two effects. One, it can make people feel comfortable and focus on the important things. Two, it can dull people to what's really happening. So if you do, the more routine you have, the more important it is that you explain why you're doing things. So that was like the Catholic Mass growing up. I had no clue what's going on. Never explained it. You know, just we do these things. So is that helpful? Routine's good, yeah. How can we encourage more the singing of the songs? Encourage the singing Sing them? Okay, next question. Uh, 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 that is a great question. Um, the uh, singing of psalms. Uh, well, hymns of um, psalms of grace just coming out. That'd be a great one. Um, the I think the key is to uh, sing songs that reflect the... Content, expressions, heart, and theology of the Psalms, which may mean you're singing some Psalms, but not necessarily only Psalms. Which I don't think you're you're asking or saying. Um, but I would draw attention to the times, anytime you sing a song that is based on the Psalm. So there are Psalms like uh, Joy to the World is based on Psalm ninety-eight, but most people don't know that. Um, so there, there are different ways we can tie people into it. I think hymns of grace would be a great one. The problem with the Hebrew poetry and bringing it into our environment is that Hebrew poetry was written differently musically than what we do. And so it, it's, chant is really the best. Uh, but I don't, I'm not encouraging you to chant, but um, it, might, it might affect things. Uh, yeah. So I would just look for good renditions of the psalms, and if you have a, a one that's a one of the ways you can do it is take a, a metrical version of a psalter of a psalm and use a tune that people know, and just put those together. So that, that's probably the best answer. Yeah. What's your view on uh, women leading worship, and number two, what is the Perfect. balance between maybe somebody that doesn't know how to worship as well if a man is supposed to come in there? Yes. Yes. Well, I do a podcast with David Simmer called Sound Plus Doctrine. Has anyone heard of that? Anyone listen to that? Yes. Oh, gosh, come on. That is on season six. <laughs> now, very briefly, it, there, it certainly depends on what that role is and what the, the significance you assign to that role. In Sovereign Grace, we only have men lead... The, 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 the singing. Yeah. We have a woman who can sing a melody, and I will make that distinction. I say, would you sing melody on this? Would you start that song off for us? But I never asked her to lead the song because leading for us involves authority and teaching and pastoring, right. which are all male roles. So, But in their situa- there, we do receive emails from people who just say, uh, it's me and this other lady. I play the guitar, she plays the piano, and we're it. And uh, in that case, I would just make sure that there's a pastor who's providing all the connecting comments. Um, And I would even encourage a pastor to stand up there, you know, and you don't have to be on mic, but just stand up there and and be a part of what's going on. It's a way to communicate to the church, you are being shepherded. And that's where I think we get more of our cues from what happens musically in the church from the rock concert culture than we do the Bible. That that role is never meant to be just, hey, whoever, whatever, you know, if you're good looking and you're young and you have a great voice, you're good. That's not the stipulations, that's <laughs> not so the requirements. I would fail on all three, so uh, it, but yeah, but we will have that podcast coming in. And what was the second part? If some Well no, just the male coming in and actually he's not as good as the Oh yeah, yeah. So the, the the main point in leadership is not musical it 's pastoral, so leading worship and song is a pastoral function before it 's a musical one. Just that 's what we need to remember. I, y- y- so many pastors abdicate you know, the, the leading of that, those songs to someone who has no theological depth or whatever, no, no communication, and you want to no, you should do it or have another responsible. You know, guy in your church do it um, if it's just you and you know no other elders. Um, but yeah, it's it's a pastoral function, and so I would find some way to have the, a, a pastor or someone who could be a, a pastor leading in that in the context of the meeting. Kevin, okay, just a couple more. Yeah, do you have a copy of your <laughs> I do. I have a Google Doc. No, I'll just tell you what we do. We do, we do a uh, call to worship. We do two songs. Then we will do a scripture reading. And then we'll do uh, usually two more songs, sometimes three. We've had a little more time open up to us because of the way we shifted the meeting recently. And then we'll do a pastoral prayer. It's like five minutes long. And we'll pray for people in the church. We'll pray for another church in town. We'll pray for things going on in the world. We're pretty specific about that. And uh, because we want the church to know, we want to model how to pray, and we want the church to know these people need prayer. And then we'll do a brief transition where we receive an offering. We, um, if there's an announcement, we might do something there. But that's only like two minutes now, whereas it used to be like six. So that's great. And then we have a, the, the sermon. And we also pray for the guy preaching Sermon, and then we usually do a song, and then a benediction. That's, that's, that's our typical liturgy, but it will change. New member Sunday, baptisms, communion. Well, communion we'll usually do in the middle of the singing. I prefer it at the end of the message, but others don't. So I'm a submitted man. And uh, I would do it every week. We don't do it every week. How many of you do communion every week? Yeah, come on. All right. Yeah, one more. You mentioned benedictions. Do you have like a list? I do. Google Doc. <laughs> uh, how could I even get that out? That, yeah, I forget where I got it from. One of, one of the things you can do is just take the benedictions in the New Testament. There are tons of them. There, there's probably books on this uh, called yes. benedictions. Yeah, I would just do a Google search of it. But what I found is that there are some that I don't include on my document that would be great as I, as, depending on the message that particular Sunday. So, all right, I'm going to be hanging around. Thank you, guys. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had to talk about these things. There's so much to think about, so much we could be doing uh, differently, but, Lord, we trust that you have already been working through our gatherings to bring glory to your name and to serve your people. We just want to do it better. We, We want to do it in a way that reflects that you are the one who is responsible, and, and you are the one who is to receive the glory, and you have given us all we need to have meetings that bring glory to you, bring glory to Christ, and see our people transformed. So we ask that you would uh, use what we've talked about for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.